Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined once again by Corey Haynes, founder of Swipe Files. Corey, it is so great to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be a, a second timer. I guess that means I said something right last time. <laughs> you said many things right last time. And so we're happy to have you back again. Today, we're talking about marketing like a media company. And this is a really exciting topic that you know you have a lot of expertise in. And there's been a lot of conversation about it online. And so before we kind of dive into that, could you just kind of just give a quick refresher on your career journey to date, what you've kind of been up to since you've last been on the show, what you're working on? Yeah. So I'm trying to split my career into three phases. The first one just being doing marketing for startups and working mainly with B2B SaaS. The second one being freelancing, experimentation, being a hired gun, working with a lot of different people and like consulting, advising, productized services kind of things. And now trying to enter into this third phase, which is starting B2B SaaS startups myself. So I have one of the worst called Swipewell, a couple other irons in the fire. And so hopefully... Next phase will be startup founder. Cool. Welcome. Jump on in. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. Yeah, Check here we in. go. Okay. I want to let's dive in, into the topic. So this phrase kind of marketing like a media company, and we're going to talk a lot about the future of marketing, but let's kind of just set some, some context. So you're a big believer in marketing like a media company. What does that actually mean? Like kind of unpack mm-hmm. that for, for our listeners. Yeah, well, I was wondering that same thing which is why I started digging into it because I kept hearing and, and reading on Twitter and other places, if you're doing marketing really well, it should really just be looking like building a you know in-house media company or in-house media brand or the best marketing. doesn't look like marketing. It looks like building a media company. And that's like a, a nice soundbite. And then like, it's very catchy and it sounds cool, but like, what does that actually mean? And are companies actually doing that? So I really dove in deep, really just for myself to understand and kind of prove out like, is there something here or it's just, does it just sound nice? And then once I really started digging out, I realized like, no, actually there's a science here and there's a reason. Um, you know how when you're in marketing and you read case studies about what works for people, it, it's what worked for them like a year ago, right? And then like now people aren't like to the next thing. And so if you're always just like reading and copying what other people are doing, you're always going to be behind, right? It's always the people at the frontier who are creating these new things, but they don't talk about it in the moment because then they would give up their advantage. Well, this is one of those things where I got into it. And I was like, ah, this is where marketing is headed. This is where all the top brands are going. This is what basically is at the frontier, at the front line of what's the most innovative iteration of what marketing looks like for scale-ups, especially. Mm-hmm. And so then I really started digging into it, research it. And I think what it comes down to, if you really want to unpack the soundbite is it means treating marketing like an inherently valuable product of the company in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Think about like, okay, let's just take SaaS companies or tech companies in general. The product that they sell is not their blog. It's not their podcast. It's not their Twitter account. It's you know a CRM. It's a, a social network, right? It's something that people can you know, type into, and that's inherently valuable for themselves. But there are media companies, which a media company is driven by content and people, right? And so when you're marketing like a media company, really what you're doing is you're treating your marketing team and the output of your marketing like a product that is valuable to people. And then you extrapolate that even more, right? And what does that really look like? Well, it looks like you're creating a lot of 
media, right? A lot of content, a lot of things that are inherently valuable. I can come in a whole bunch of different ways, yeah. but really I think what it boils down to, if I had to just sum it up was um, treating our content, treating our marketing like a product. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the things that I've noticed, and I'd be curious to get your take on this, we've started to see this shift in marketing where just simple words. So five, 10 years ago, there was a lot of words around, or the word that was kind of used was target customer, target consumer. And now what you're seeing is target audience. And this word audience mm. has like really kind of started to stick in marketing. And audience is more of like a media word than, you know, traditional kind of marketing conversion focused word. Have you kind of seen that? What do you think? Yeah, I, a lot of that. I've definitely seen a, the pendulum swing back in favor of more, maybe what we traditionally call brand marketing as opposed to performance marketing mm -hmm. with the kind of dot-com boom and technology really coming up to speed, internet really permeating everyone's lives and gaining mass adoption, everything becoming digital for the first time in a ever, everything was very, very measurable. And so we got really deep into performance marketing, which was like, okay, we're only going to do the things that we can directly see an ROI out of tomorrow, basically. Right. And that was great for a while for an era. And then as everyone adopts that, then things get more expensive. Everything's saturated. Now we have like a million and one brands all fighting for your attention, customer acquisition costs, even like uh, a level deeper than that, like cost per click across a lot of the ad platforms. It just goes up and up and up and up all the time. The reach across a lot of even organic platforms like social media networks and uh, and even places like Google, a lot more competitive, a lot more noisy, a lot less organic reach. And so basically everything has gotten harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so people are going back to brand marketing and brand marketing basically is marketing that you're not going to see the measurable ROI of tomorrow. Yeah. You might be able to sort of correlate things in three months, six months, a year, but really what you're doing is you're trying to make some investments, you're trying to plant some seeds. You're trying to make all the numbers go up as opposed to just tracking it back to some sort of conversion point, right? Yeah. You're looking at traffic, you're looking at impressions, you're looking at source traffic for your brand, just general sentiment and awareness of who you are and consumers awareness of the problems that you solve. And so with that, the stakes get higher everything's more competitive. When everyone's doing the exact same things, you have to find what is the next advantage for your marketing? What is the next thing that you can do to beat it out? And I feel like this is kind of the, not the final frontier, but like, I think we're going to stay here for a long time in this whole kind of marketing, like a media company phase. Yeah. Because I don't know else where we would go, right? It was like, first we had brand marketing where we're just running commercials and billboards and newspaper advertisements that are completely unattributable, basically. Uh, aside from like using a coupon or pushing people to a specific page, maybe that you can try to, to draw some conclusions. And then we had the performance marketing age. And now we're basically seeing the best of both of those. Whereas how can you blend those two? We're going to still measure everything. Everything is still very measurable, maybe not as measurable as it was. Mm -hmm. Super competitive, but we have to swing back to more brand marketing. We have to do more top of funnel stuff. And we have to treat our marketing like a product because otherwise it's just not going to get read. It's just not going to get clicked. It's just yeah. not going to amount to anything that we'll see the downstream effects of on the bottom line. For sure. And I think, you know, it's funny you say that, like two things stick out to me in, in everything that you just said. Number one, people's bullshit meters are at an all-time high. Yeah. I feel like we can all kind of like <laughs> sniff it out. We know when we're being marketed to or, or sold to. So that was like, number one, bang on, completely agree. Num number two is 
really around this idea of th this kind of perfect storm of competitiveness. This is something that we talk a ton about with, with our clients. And I've kind of been talking about in you know, my LinkedIn content specifically is we have this perfect storm where more people spending more time online, therefore more businesses, brands are throwing dollars and resources at reaching those people, which means it's driving that competitiveness up and up and up. Mm -hmm. And it's made it really, really hard to earn someone's attention. And I think about what you said around that word attention, if that's kind of the name of the game for marketing is like, before we even bring someone into the ecosystem, how can we just capture their attention? That's a hard mm -hmm. enough thing to do in 2022 and beyond when we're all getting hit with so many different things and everyone is kind of marketing it to the nth degree. And one of the things I always think back to is some of the best brands whether you buy from them or not, they still do a great job of creating a great experience, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think back to my time at Red Bull, whether you bought the product or not, we were going to create a great experience for you through the content that we were creating. And, you know, you probably have other examples of brands that have done that, but, you know, let's even take like the obvious example with um, HubSpot acquiring the hustle. So whether you are yeah. a HubSpot, like we use HubSpot now as our CRM, we've been using them for the last three years. But I was absolutely reading HubSpot's blog way before that. And I was reading The Hustle and listening to My First Million and like that podcast, whether I buy something or not, they're giving themselves an advantage from a brand positioning perspective. And so that really resonated with me. And I think that's something I completely agree with you in that we're going to see that moving forward where, you know, this is kind of going to be it. Yeah, there might be like little kind of tweaks here and there, but it's going to be about balancing, like, how can you use that brand marketing side of thing to earn someone's attention, capture that attention, and then strategically set things up to pull them closer to your brand and then potentially convert them if they want to. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To get a little more um, practical and bring in some examples maybe so that mm -hmm. it, it feels a little bit more tangible, like you can wrap your your mind around it. A couple of companies do it really well. I just mentioned HubSpot acquiring the hustle, a really, really good example, especially on like the M&A as marketing kind of strategy of like, let's just go buy media properties and then incorporate them into our marketing strategy and marketing organization as a whole. You see them now, you know, they're rolling out a whole podcast network. They're incubating podcasts in-house with yeah. their uh, HubSpot creators program. Yeah, They're cross-promoting all their media properties across the hustle and HubSpot now. Yeah. So it's, it's basically becoming like this whole, you know, media world that you get involved in. And once you're in one, you can introduce into another, into another, into another, into another. Coinbase has done this really well. They basically, you know, crypto is very like news driven, right? Yeah. Basically the stock market, right? Totally. Chain. And there's a lot of skepticism and kind of cynicism and a lot of rumors going around. And so they thought, you know what, instead of just being like at the whims of whatever these mainstream finance media companies are writing about, or even some of the more crypto focused news companies are writing about, let's just build our own PR and, and news outlet basically. And now they're the ones that are curating the topics. They have their own narrative. They can incorporate themselves in a very natural, you know, slightly biased, but still relatively objective way. And now they become the source, right? They become the destination where it's like, you want to learn about crypto? Don't just learn about Coinbase through some other site. Go to Coinbase News and now you'll get all the news that you want and you'll learn about Coinbase. Yeah. ProfitWell has done this for a long time where they have a whole like recur network of mm. uh, their blog, different podcasts, shows. Westia has done an amazing job of this from a, from yeah. a long time where they have um, one of my favorite series of all time was their 110, 100 docuseries where uh, they do video hosting SaaS. So they hired a video marketing agency to create 
three different ads for them with budgets of one, ten, and a hundred thousand dollars. Documented that whole process, and then they also show like the end result of that. And so it appeals; it checks all the right boxes of like one, it's a really fun thing to watch. Like I just watched all you know three hours of the content, or whatever it was. Two, you learn through it. It's kind of this edutainment category where it's not just like this cut and dry blog. Here's how to do X, Y, and Z. And it's not just entertainment where you, you, know, you don't leave feeling like, why did I just spend my time on that? Mm-hmm. It checks both of those boxes yeah. and um, it goes viral, has a lot of reach out there. Uh, so Wizards did an amazing job of that. There's a whole bunch, I think, particularly in the, in the SaaS space, people have done a really good job of this. Yeah. But even you think about companies like Tesla with Elon Musk, he is their, their marketing <laughs> team. You know, like the guy is, he has the most Twitter followers uh, of anyone on Twitter. He's basically the most popular and famous person in the world. Maybe they're not the most loved person in the world anymore. Yeah. You know, he is the media personality driving uh, Tesla's traction. Mm-hmm. Think about you, even to get a little more philosophical, like what a media company is. Yes, you treat your content like a product, but even it's also about who's creating that content in the first place. Mm-hmm. A lot of people watch certain news networks just for certain reporters or anchors mm-hmm. or whoever like the show is about. Totally. Um, same thing with journalists, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to just hear anyone's take. You want to hear someone in particular who you trust. YouTube, right? Anyone who has like a big YouTube channel or YouTube network. I was actually just listening to uh, the Not Investment Advice podcast with Trung Finn interviewing these two guys who have these basketball Instagram and like media companies. And they just have like a whole bunch of things that are just teaching people basketball techniques, shooting techniques, coaching techniques, you know, they treat their product like that, but it's really about the coaches. It's these two guys. They're each the figureheads of like, people look to them, you know, they're NBA level coaches, shooting coaches, technique coaches. And so it's about the people behind it mm-hmm. in the same way that you treat about your, uh, your content, like a product, treat your people like a product in the way that <laughs> they are a part of the media, right? Yeah. They are a part of the thing that you sell. It's, Hey, come follow Steph Smith at, yep. at the hustle at HubSpot. She actually just left to A16Z running their new or their old podcast, but she's the new host of their podcast. But yeah, she's going to bring an audience with her, right? Mm-hmm. Think about people like Jay Kunzo, Jay Klaus, who are like really big people in the creator space and the content space and the storytelling space. They join a company like uh, Jay Klaus is part of SPI for a while. Uh, Jay Kunzo was part of the Sweetfish Media brand for a while. Like they bring weight to whatever they're doing. They're kind of like these stars, right? Just like we think about athletes. Totally. Now we kind of have this whole, these media personalities as athletes idea in, in the business space. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. Like there are a couple others that come to mind. Like later here in Vancouver, there was Taylor from later, Taylor Loren. And like yeah. she became kind of the face of Instagram growth hacking, right? And then she mm-hmm. went on, she worked at Girl Boss, and now she's kind of doing her her own thing consulting and she started a course all about Instagram reels and has like just kind of become her own creator working for herself. So I want to kind of double click into that whole developing influencers or personalities in-house because like, you know, here we are talking about like, look, this is a smart thing to do, but there are probably some people listening being like, how should brands approach that and kind of go about that? I think one of the challenges is a business kind of associating themselves or attaching themselves to an employee's personal brand, I can kind of attest like as a small founder myself, it's like, yeah, of course you kind of have to do that. That's part of the game. But once the business kind of hits a certain size or if a business has grown to a certain size without having to do that, how would you kind of recommend a business approaches kind of doing that in building those personalities or like 
what should a brand be looking for in that type of person? Yeah. Well, I think it really starts from a, a cultural standpoint about mm -hmm. uh, the founders, the leadership team, the C-level team, what they believe, you know, are they invested in this idea? Because I'll tell you, if they're not, then you try to do this no matter what position you are or how much money you have, it's just not going to work because it's not going to yeah. be incurred. It's going to be frowned upon. Uh, you're going to get a lot of weird bureaucracy and politics inside that's going to discourage it. So you have to start ground level with leadership and that to be bought into it. And also you want to start with them. Start yeah. with the founder. Yeah. Talk about uh, you know risk of developing these in-house personalities and these media people. Obviously you want your, your founder, your CEO, your C-level people to be kind of at the forefront of that because they're the most bought in. They're the most skin yeah. in the game. They're probably going to be around for the longest, right? So it makes the most sense to start there because that way you have the least amount of risk as possible. And for founders, it's super, super simple. It's building public kind of stuff. It's yeah. share what you work on, be authentic, share your wins and your losses, share stuff that's in progress. Think out loud about how you're making decisions, what you're working on, what the future looks like, roadmaps, upcoming features, spark conversations, build hype, right? Now, you don't want to do it in a misleading way. We've seen this very recently with Dom from Fast and now yeah. even Ryan from Bolt, where it's like, yeah. cool, it's not just about the hype train. It's not just about building a big brand. It's also about carrying over to the business. Right? Building a sustainable business. <laughs> yes, that's also important. Minor um, detail, asterisks. <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, again, think about people like Elon Musk. Think about people like Patrick Campbell. I think about Gary um, Vee. Like I, yeah, Gary Vee like, is a great missed. one. It was like he became big, and then it was like, oh yeah, VaynerMedia, by the way, type thing. Yes, exactly. So the founders, you know, I feel like it, it almost can't be coached. The founder has to really dig into that themselves. Mm -hmm. A marketing person or outside source can help them and yeah. maybe do some of the work of like creating that content. But again, the founders got to be bought in and they have to be invested in making that happen. Now, if you're thinking about people who are not C level leadership or the founders. You want to develop other in-house people, just employees. I think you want to create those swim lanes and opportunities for people to do that and treat it more like an experiment on the marketing team. They don't have to be on the marketing team. In fact, I think it works better when they're not yeah. because then it's not so obvious. You know, hey, I'm the director of marketing for X company. Now I'm trying to become a thought leader in the space. Like, what do you know? <laughs> You're the marketing guy, right? But if they're the VP of product management or if they're the head of customer success, yeah. you know, we see some roles these days like chief evangelists sometimes. There's this woman, Anna Lorena Fabrega, if I'm, if I'm pronouncing it right. She works for Synthesis, which was a kind of homeschooling startup, actually spun out of Tesla and from Elon Musk. But she's like this big personality around kids' education. She joined Synthesis as her chief evangelist. And now she's basically just like the spokesperson, the media personality. And yeah. they hired her on. She was not a co-founder. Yeah. She's also not like C-level decision maker. She is a glorified spokesperson for the company that works really, really well, right? She gets mm -hmm. invited to talks, goes on podcasts, writes content. I think about people from the from the hustle and from HubSpot, like Steph Smith, Trung Fan, Alex Garcia. Like there's a whole kind of media mafia that was born out of totally uh, that whole merger. Yeah. And they just did a really good job of enabling them to have a voice outside of their day job that actually became a part of the day job. 
and just encouraging that, right? Sharing the playbooks. I remember Sam talking about how he would encourage Steph to talk about what she was working on, or she, you know, he would love when she would share, share stuff about writing. And then when her ebook took off, he was like, "Just do more of that." He was encouraged. He was sharing the playbook of how to grow on Twitter with Alex Garcia. You know, he's telling Trung to tweet more and to really dig into the memes and to the shit posting and just whatever flavor they want to get into. Those people have to be bought in as well. They have to yeah. want to do it. You can't just be like, "Hey, a part of your job now is going to be." being an influencer. Totally. It just doesn't work like that. Right. And yeah. It takes time, but still the playbooks can be shared. It can be encouraged. And I think it's more about culturally, how do you empower all of your team or at least more of your team to be pseudo marketers, to be yeah. spokespeople and evangelists for the brand and not just, you know, in the code base, not just in the support system, not just X, Y, Z, but that they have a more active voice in the community. Totally. I want to dig into something you said a little while back, just around owning the means of distribution. So we kind of talk about like, to your point of having influencers within your organization and kind of speaking on behalf of the brand or, you know, being the evangelist, how does that play into distribution? And so can you kind of like expand on this idea of like how important distribution is, but also how by doing what you just talked about builds additional distribution? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I came up with this framework called the Orb Framework, where it basically boils everything down into owned means of distribution, owned platforms, rented platforms, and borrowed platforms. Mm -hmm. And specifically in that order, because you want to prioritize owned platforms, which are things like email, SMS, communities, podcasts, your own website, where you have a direct line of communication with your audience or with your customers, whichever word you want to slide in there. Yeah. And that's really important because rented platforms like social media sites, third-party app stores or listings, bylines, et cetera, et cetera. One, it's, it's rented land. It's not yours. So it can be taken away at any moment, but also you're going to be subject to algorithms and changes in the platform, censorship, a lot of risks, right? That take away your effectiveness with that channel. And then we have borrowed platforms. Borrowed platforms are basically tapping into someone else's owned or rented platform where you're saying, hey, let's do a collab, right? Rappers and like uh, hip hop artists were like the OGs at this where I'd be like, hey, do a track, you know, for me, it'd be like do feature. A feature. <laughs> yeah, do a feature. Exactly. Because I realized that, hey, if I can get Snoop Dogg on my track, all Snoop Dogg fans are going to come listen to my music now. And the Snoop, Snoop Dogg is going to tweet about it. He's going to post on Instagram. It's going to show up in all the search results on Spotify and Apple Music or whatever it is. And so you're borrowing their owned and rented platforms, right? Mm. The quality matters a lot, right? Again, going back to, to the platform risk, it's very, very real. In fact, um, I don't know if you follow Jack Butcher, a visualized value. Yep, of course. He's okay. Yeah, he's awesome. Makes these amazing visuals and it's yeah. been like a really great thought leader on, on Twitter. It was crazy because literally as I was making the course content for Swipe Files on Marketing Like a Media Company, three out of four of his Twitter accounts just got uh, suspended out of nowhere. What? I didn't <laughs> know he had, that. He had like 400,000 followers across all of his Twitter uh, accounts. It, it was like at value, at visualized value, and at like another one that I didn't even know about at the time. It was like a, a meme account. Yeah. They are still suspended. He had to move everything to his personal account, which now he has even more kind of centralized risk for uh, yeah. platform risk. But just out of nowhere, he went from reaching actually millions of people every week yeah. to zero overnight. Yeah. So basically the point is you use borrowed platforms to get people onto your rented platforms, and then you use rented platforms to move people onto your owned platforms. Mm -hmm. And now with your own platforms, no one can tell you no. There is no algorithm. You have a direct line of communication. 
You think about email, for example, it's probably the most powerful of them all. There's no algorithm for email. Like, yeah, there's a spam and there's a couple of tabs of like promotions or updates versus primary inbox or, you know, social or whatever it is. But an email is an email. It gets delivered every single time. And there's never going to be like some sort of fancy, crazy sorting or what gets shown or not shown. Like every email has potential to get viewed, which is amazingly powerful, right? So I tell everyone, like, you got to at least have an email list, even things like RSS feeds for podcasts. It's a, an open standard protocol for the web. Like mm -hmm. you have an RSS feed, someone plugs into it, they will get that content every single time, wherever it feeds into. Same with, with your blog, right? No one can just like take your website down. Sure. You can like rank higher or lower in Google, but if someone types in your URL, they will get there every single time. So as long as you pay your hosting bill. Mm -hmm. I want to SMS. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dig a little bit further into that. Cause this is something that I am. I, first of all, love the framework, like definitely going to use that and steal that. Cause it's so smart. I think traditionally there's been like, you know, the peso model paid, earned, shared, owned, like that's kind yeah, of like traditional yeah. marketing. I like your spin on that way more. What I've noticed at least in brands that we talk to and, and, you know, friends of mine who, who work in marketing, it's typically been this battle between owned and shared. So, mm. you know, owned being email site app, whatever that is, and then shared being kind of social and many businesses, I feel like struggle on like, it's kind of that necessary evil. You kind of have to be everywhere, but which one should get priority. Right. So, yeah, right. you know, it's, oh, we have this really great piece of content. Well, should this live on the own thing or should this live on the shared thing or both? And like, how does that incentivize people? And I don't know. I, I have some like pretty strong opinions on, on this in that people are going to consume the way they want to consume. And right. so like, why not make the best stuff and put it everywhere so that there might be some people who, yes, I could want them to come to my site, but they're never going to come to my site ever. That's just not how the way they consume. That's not the yeah. way they roll, but I still potentially want to earn their attention. So should I build an experience on to your point, a rented platform or a borrowed platform where they can still have a good experience um, mm -hmm. without them having to necessarily give me my email. On the flip side of that, to play devil's advocate, totally hear what you're saying with platform risk and like the rug kind of being pulled out from what you mentioned with Jack. And so, yeah, this is like a, a thing that I'm kind of, I think a lot about, and it's something that I don't think anybody has truly figured out. I think my advice is always make the best stuff, put it everywhere, optimize it as best you can. And then if you can create those kind of strategic pathways where like you're incentivizing people to move closer to your brand off of the rented and borrowed platforms to spend more time with you, great. But at the mm -hmm. very least, if not, you're still giving them a great experience in another place. You, I don't you know. What that, do you like, think about that? You have to be everywhere, everywhere yeah. that you can or everywhere your audience is, is yeah. more, kind of more apt. You don't have to be everywhere, do everything uh, like yep. Gary Vee used to say, but <laughs> the pathways are the key. And I think it matters a lot more than people realize. I've seen multiple Twitter accounts now, or I should say people on Twitter, where they'll rise to, you know, basically zero to a hundred thousand in uh in followers in like you know three to six months, just like absolute skyrocket growth. Yeah. And then of course they launch a newsletter, and then you'll see vastly different approaches. Yeah. And you can kind of measure how well each one is working just by comparing people's email list size. Yeah. There are some people who have uh, like I think about people like Lenny Richitsky, I think he has maybe like close to 100,000 followers. Maybe it's more close to like 50 or 60, but he has over 100,000 newsletter subscribers. Like that wow. is an amazing ratio. We're talking about like follower to subscriber. Totally. Obviously it's not one-to-one, -one, but just like measuring both of those 
distribution platforms. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then I see people like, uh, I won't name them, but there's been a couple who have just skyrocketed even past 200,000 followers. And they still only have like 20,000 newsletter subscribers because they were never intentional about in their threads, linking back to the newsletter in their profile, optimizing for newsletter subscriptions. Mm-hmm. You know, they either launched it too late or they launched it too early or the newsletter is just kind of crap in general. And so there's no reason to sign up in the first place. And so the, the pathways is really, really key. I think about it a lot, even for myself being on like the smaller end of the spectrum, I have about 16,000 followers about 7,500 newsletter subscribers. So it's about, you know, uh, one half of every follower ish. I prioritize and value my newsletter list like a hundred times more than my Twitter following, but I'm always trying to at least like keep that ratio going or increase that ratio. And so everything that I do on Twitter, my next move is always, Hey, go subscribe to the newsletter. Yeah. And if I'm on a podcast, I'm always telling people, Hey, go follow me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So I know like, you know, it's probably a long story. They don't know me. They don't know the content that I create. They know my voice, but like, just go follow me to it. It's an easier ask than subscribe to me on, on my newsletter. I'll go, yeah. go check out this, uh, this landing page, download this ebook, et cetera, et cetera. Like I'd rather just remove all the friction and just trust that, okay, if I have them as a Twitter follower, I can probably get them as a newsletter subscriber too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that comes to mind with all that is in talking to some brands, even around like team structure. I've seen a lot of social teams or marketing teams be structured by platform. And I've historically said, you know, (laughs) there's platform risk. Do you want to have a Twitter person and an Instagram person and, you know, a Facebook person? Because like those platforms might not be as relevant as time goes on. Not saying they're going away, but it's, there was a time where it was like Snapchat is the Facebook killer. And it's like, if you had a Snapchat person, you know, maybe not. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And so I think about organizing things almost by function. So like when I was working on, on the brand side, when I was specifically in social, you know, I had a platform person, a content person, a community person who was doing a mix of like influencer stuff, as well as, you know, building community with employer brand, like that sort of thing. And then like a performance paid person, because every one of the social platforms has aspects of that platform, scheduling, posting, creating content, optimizing it for the specific platform doing influencer relationship, community building stuff, and then like the paid side of it. And so thinking about what you kind of said with the orb framework, it really kind of resonates with me thinking about like, yes, you need to be everywhere that your audience is, but like, you also just need that core competency kind of built in that allows you to kind of be every, in all the places where you should be and be able to kind of tailor those experiences natively. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I, uh, one of the other companies that comes to mind that does this really well is Ahrefs mm-hmm. and their marketing team is actually pretty large. I think they're maybe close to like 15 people now or 20 people now, but really what you'll find is that they have a whole bunch of content creators yeah. and then like a couple of content distributors basically. So they have like uh, a whole team of writers, a lot of people, even outside of marketing do a lot of writing. And then you have a couple of people who are creating, or actually, yeah, I think it's two people creating video. And they're just taking written content and then turning it into video. Yeah. And then they have, you know, like a SEO pro, a social pro. And then like, I don't think they're doing any paid ads, but they have someone who's also doing like niche newsletter sponsors. And yeah. I know because they're a sponsor of, of Swipe Files, yeah. um, but it's one person, right? But the vast majority of the other team is just focused on creating the content. And then they have people with, you know, pretty broad responsibilities across different platforms to so then chop it up, repackage, repurpose, yeah. create the video and then create snippets from the video and then post those videos to LinkedIn and then to Twitter. And like, you know, once you have the content, 
the distribution part is actually fairly easy. Yeah, but takes time. Like, I think that's one of the things is like, I I think about how I feel like, and and Ross Simmons is like, you know, create once, distribute Mm -hmm. forever, right? Like his kind of whole, whole mantra is like, I found marketers will spend a ton of time creating content and they're like, okay, we posted it and it's done. And it's like, (laughs) no, no. And like everything you just described was like, there is still a full on machine of how they're chopping things up and and repurposing Mm -hmm. it to kind of extend the lifespan of a content investment to make sure that you're giving your your business or your brand the most chance for success of something taking off or earning someone's attention. That's what it comes down to. Again, going back to like treating your content like a product and treating your people like a product and that they're a part of your team and part of why people come to follow you or, or buy from you. You can't just stop at publish. <laughs> You've got to yeah. really do a lot of work. In fact, I see today a lot of people on Twitter, it's not just it's not even enough to post once or twice or put it into a drip campaign like you have to test it rigorously thing i'm blinking i'm blanking on his name now but he's a creator who's really big on uh, on linkedin and now he's branching into twitter and he's been sharing his whole kind of playbook about how he's been growing on twitter and he shared one case study around how he had this massive thread about his basically his uh, his kind of course funnel and his creator business and uh, the first time that he posted the thread completely flopped second time worked a different headline, just one line at the top. That was it. That was different. Did a little bit better, but it still wasn't the best. Third time, changed the the first tweet of the thread entirely, just completely blew up and took off. And so he's posting the same content to the same people multiple times with drastically different results. And I don't think any of us are nearly as kind of rigorous and and ruthless as we could be just about optimizing the hooks uh, the line, the pathways to other means of distribution. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time, but it's worth it, especially if you're going to be treating your content like a product. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think I know who you're talking about, but I don't have the name, but I have, I know oh, I have man. that thread bookmark somewhere in my, <laughs> in my somewhere. swipe file. So <laughs> I, I feel like I want to, I want to figure out who that is and add it to the show notes. Yeah. I'll, I'll find them for you. I'll, I'll grab a link. Cool. I want to kind of switch gears here a little bit. A lot has changed since you and I last spoke and we recorded our last episode. What are the things that you kind of get most excited about with where marketing is going? Like, I feel like the the audience media company kind of mentality is really starting to become a thing, like even in the last year. And maybe that's a COVID thing because people are spending more time online. And I think a lot of brands were like, well, shit, we got to figure out this digital thing. And like, it's not kind of this thing that we'll just continue to push into the future. I don't know. Like, what are the things that kind of get you most excited? What are you thinking about that's top of mind? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited just to see people kind of push the boundaries and explore like what marketing even means or look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate to keep kind of beating on the drum of marketing like a media company, but just the the level and the quality of content that is coming out, and I think that will continue to come out, is really, really exciting, especially when it blurs the lines between education and entertainment. We get this kind of edutainment yeah. side of things as well. I think that's that's super exciting. Think about more ways to to really make it a key part of what you do. There are some brands that I follow where I only follow them for their content. Mm-hmm. And I've considered using the product, but it's just like not a good fit for me. But like, I am massive fans uh, of their content and I will shout from the rooftops about all the different things that I watch and listen and uh, absorb from them. And I'm always looking to the people that are producing that content. And so I think for like podcasts, always been a huge podcast guy. There's a, a lot more room for like real 
produced serialized content in the podcast space where it's like episodic. You have really narrative driven stories that are being told through podcasts that go deep. You know, basically the whole, I think like startup by Gimlet was one of the keystone podcasts that came out that really helped the whole space take off in, in general. And we haven't gotten back to that level of storytelling. And like that level of production for podcasts, mm-hmm. shows as well, not just shows and like YouTube series, but like real actual shows that you can subscribe to, that you can, uh, that you can watch even more like vlog style content, yeah. behind the scenes style content, things that are more about like company culture, docu-series, really digging into how things work. Super excited for that. Yeah. Obviously there's web three in the picture as well. And like this whole new paradigm and dynamic of Okay, what if we make all of our customers and fans shareholders too? Yeah. <laughs> what does that do to the whole to the whole business dynamic? That brings a lot of like community stuff in play as well. Yeah. I think the web three has driven a lot of that where it's like, how do we just get people into make decisions together and produce things together yeah. and contribute in some way and various different levels, but all in sync and all for the same mission, all marching to the same tune. I think that that counts as marketing personally, like that's forwarding the mission of the business that is getting it more into more people's hands, right? As long as it's getting the product into more people's hands, that is marketing, what I would count as marketing. Yeah. And yeah, it's just going to continue to get more fun, more creative. It's funny you mentioned the web three thing. I feel like I've started to see more, at least titles on LinkedIn, like official titles from brands where it's like, I'm the director of digital and metaverse, or I'm the director of digital and web three. And part of me is like kind of cringe, but the other part of me is like, ah, it's, you know, if it's getting worked into people's real titles, it's, or official titles, sorry. Is it actually here to like, obviously, you know, we're very early days in this and the applications I think still have a long way to go. That's my personal take on it. But at the same time, being early on something like and getting ready organizationally of like, how do we set up structures to handle this topic from a business perspective for us is really interesting. What do you think about that? No, I've been taking notes really closely on, on Web3, crypto, DeFi stuff in general, just to see like, what is the marketing playbook and how do these projects get traction? Because mm-hmm. uh, they'll seem like they kind of pop out of nowhere and it feels exactly like the early days of the internet. I was super young when the internet first started popping off. So I didn't have the opportunity to really sink my teeth into it and dissect it like I can today. So I've been following it really, really, really closely. Mm-hmm. Um, what you'll find is it's, there's a lot of interesting similarities and mm-hmm. kind of paradigms where you can see like, oh, this is the equivalent of this thing that we do over here. And then there's a lot of differences as well. What I normally see for a lot of projects that pop off is they're basically like their Discord link is the new like subscribe or drop your email. It's like no one wants to just drop in their email anymore. They want to just join a Discord even before they like connect their wallet or they yeah. follow the Twitter. They're just like, hey, I'm going to just go check it out in Discord. So Discord's like the new hub, the new way that you capture someone's information uh, and you get them involved in your brand. And that's how they keep up with like, updates and they're basically just looking for the announcements channel <laughs> to have a little shiny red one uh, to go and check it out rather than like an email blast or like a, a tweet update. And then a lot of them are, especially in the early days, are driven by giveaways and partnerships and competitions. So not necessarily even about like the product itself, whether it's an NFT project or DeFi or some sort of like protocol or, you know, bleeding edge technology. It's just about 
getting people involved from other projects who might be a good fit. So very much that be in the orb, the borrowed audiences, the borrowed platforms playbook. And then a lot of it has to do with influencers. A lot of it has to do with mm-hmm. who are the big names, who are the whales get involved, who are the, the people with big Twitter followings. A lot of the shady stuff actually uh, is happening with the influencers because the bad ones will basically just be shilling bad stuff and just kind of pump and dump. But even a lot of the good ones, they'll get airdropped an NFT project or uh, a coin from, cause you can just send it to anyone's address. Yeah, They don't know what it is. And then that project would be like, look, this crypto or NFT influencer has our project. They're a part of our team. Then they're like, whoa, wait, where did this come from? Like, you're talking about me. I've never heard of these people ever before. Yeah. Um, but you, you can't do that in an ethical way. I saw, I think it was party round. I want to say I could be wrong on this, but they created like a, a VC punks NFT collection where it looked like a crypto punk, but they did it off of a bunch of famous VCs. Okay. And then they were like, look, all you guys have six hours to claim yours. Otherwise, we're just like selling it to the highest bidder. And so they all jumped on it and were like, cool, I'll claim mine. Shit. And like, oh, what's this whole party round thing? Oh, cool. I can become a customer this way. Sweet. Now I'm, I'm a fan. Now I'm involved in some way. Yeah. Uh, so they got like Alexis Ohanian to get on board and yeah. like all these big time VCs just because they're basically like, creating some scarcity and urgency through a project, you know, yeah. using kind of web three protocols and standards. Yeah. I'm torn. Like, and I know the episode is not supposed to be about web three NFTs. I feel like this is gonna be like a whole nother episode, but I think about, um, have you, there, there's this, uh, video that was uploaded in January on YouTube called the line goes up or line goes up. And it's by this channel called folding ideas. It's actually a Canadian guy here out of Calgary. And it's like a two hour kind of like thing about like, NFTs, Web3, and then, you know, Scott Galloway has written a lot about how he thinks Web3 is actually just a head fake in terms of like re-centralization in a different form. But at the Mm. same time, like I hear the applications of like smart contracts, community, like I, I, I hear it and I'm like, I'm so stuck and, and torn in the middle and I don't know. And maybe that's just like my personal risk appetite of being like, ah, you know, if you get in early, you can be super rewarded. Everyone's heard the story where, you know, someone bought Bitcoin in 2013 and then all of a mm-hmm. sudden opened their wallet and was like, oh my gosh, I have a yacht now. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but then on the flip side of it, how many people have lost money with rug pulls with unethical things? Like, yeah, yeah I don't know. I'm torn. I just have to like put that out there. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm keeping a close eye because I think that there are some things that we can learn. And it's basically like an indicator of where marketing is going. Like, what does marketing look like for the mm-hmm. most cutting edge technology? Yeah. That's probably what marketing is going to look like for everyone eventually. Yeah. And not like there's what's happening today exactly is what it's going to look like for everyone in the future. Cause yeah. I would really hope that discord is not like the central point for everyone. But I think that the way that people are going about it and why it's working on people is very indicative, right? And basically how they're able to get traction, you know, it kind of gives us some clues into deeper levels of psychology in the markets today and just how people work. Yeah. Again, the stakes get higher, markets get noisier, there's more competition, costs uh, get more expensive. And so I'm always trying to figure out like what's next on the frontier. Mm-hmm. And this feels very much like, yeah, not all this is going to transfer, but like, we're going to see some of this. And like, this is just how people are going to be used to responding to projects, getting hyped up, staying in the loop, learning about them. Really interesting too, because a lot of crypto projects are like the founders are uh, anonymous, right? Or they have like some sort of pseudonym. Totally. Um, It was a big deal when like the Board of Yacht Club creators got doxxed and they're like publicly revealed kind of against their will. But a lot of projects 
are either like very, very publicly, there's some sort of figure or they're completely anonymous. Like the fact that that works is baffling to me. I'm like, oh, like these people, if you can build hype for something where no one even knows who's behind it, like you're doing something <laughs> right, right? Like I want to know what marketing magic is happening over there. There. So yeah, there, there's a lot of things to learn, I think. Yeah, yeah. Super interesting. Okay. We got to wind down the episode. I only have a couple more questions for you. So you're someone who I consider to be very well informed, very well read. Who, how do you stay up to date with things? Who are you listening to? Who are you reading? Who are you following? Uh, I know you had some good ones last time, but I'm wondering if there are any new people where you're like, ah, this person said something smart recently. <laughs> yeah. You know, my, my content diet these days is rather simple. I listen to quite a few podcasts. My first million all in podcasts, not investment advice are probably like the three big, like staying current with the news and just like stories and ideas and definitely like more on like the entertainment side of things. And then there's quite a few other podcasts just with like bootstrapper kind of founder podcast that I like to keep up to date with friends. I'm a diligent reader of Sean Perry's Milk Road. That's mm -hmm. how I stay up to date on all things Web3. And if you're not, I would highly encourage you to uh, join that list. It's a lot of fun. And uh, otherwise, it's mainly just Twitter. You know, yeah. I'm kind of stumbling into things. I'm looking at what's trending. Uh, I'm following people. I have lists built out for certain topics where I'm sort of trying to curate like thought leadership from people. So I'm not missing what the algorithm isn't showing me and trying to get more like an honest view of what people are saying. And then I'm also part of uh, a mastermind group with a couple of other creators. So we're also like once a month sharing notes on what we're doing, what we see other people doing, what's working, what's not working. And they're also a pretty good source for me to try and figure out like, where's everything going? What's happening? What's interesting? What should I be looking into further? Absolutely. That all sounds good. I, I always say like every few months I go back to a few people to see who they're following on Twitter. And you're one of the people that I'm like, who is Corey following? <laughs> and I like go through, I'm like, I've never heard of this person. I'm not following this person. So yeah, I highly recommend anybody listening to do the same because I, I definitely do that on a regular basis. Sweet. Okay. Last question where I'm sure there's going to be more questions from people listening to this episode. So where is the best place for people to get a hold of you online? Yeah, Twitter, just at Corey Haynes Co. And then my newsletter at Swifiles, swifiles.com. I just force everyone to go through the newsletter because one, it's definitely a good product. Like I put a lot of thought and effort into all the new newsletters that go out. And it's kind of just like the central point where then people can learn more about me and learn more about the Swifiles community and membership and courses. And I have a whole, actually, I just mentioned, I have a whole course on marketing that community company mm -hmm. where it goes in. I have, I want to say like, 30 ish videos from like 10 to 30 minutes kind of going through each of the modules. I go through, wow. you know, platforms, strategy, building in-house personalities, each one of the owned rented and borrowed platforms. Um, and just kind of like give like the playbook here's what I see work and have lots and lots of examples. So if you really want to dig into this, I would say just become a spy files member and dig into the course. Absolutely. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining me. Always great to chat with you and we will definitely have you back on at some point in the future. All right. Number three. Thanks for having me. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.